So, first thing I want to talk about is about writing. <laughs> okay. Uh, Are you? Do you want to be a writer? Well, that's actually something interesting. I don't necessarily know if I want to be a writer, but mm -hmm. I think that writing would be very therapeutic. Uh, it is therapeutic, yes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I've always had a fear of writing because of my dyslexia. Uh-huh. And, uh, and even reading is a big problem for me as well. But yet you got through college. I got through college. Yeah. So I managed okay. Yeah. I think, you know, that's why I escaped to the math and science side of things. I didn't have to read as much. But... Uh, there's the babies that I do here. <laughs> so you like audiobooks probably more than some people. Right. So when I when I when I started to have long commutes, yeah, uh, audiobooks and podcasts were the things that I was fascinated by, mm -hmm. and uh, I uh, I kind of love love doing those. Do you think Trump is dyslexic? Yes, I do. Because I he, think he's too vain to admit it. Yes. But I think he is dyslexic. Yeah. He doesn't read teleprompters. Right. He never has any speeches. He's always just going off the cuff. Yes. And I can see him struggling when any time someone hands him something to read. Yes. So I really think he's dyslexic, and a lot of people want to say other things about it, but I think it's a very interesting subject. Maybe that's one reason he hates the press, because he, <laughs> he can't read it? Or? <laughs> Maybe. Yeah. Well, he just watches Fox News. Yeah, yeah. But anyway, you're going to ask me about writing. So, so yeah, have you... Part of what I guess I want to write, and this is something that my friend Dan Thrawn has been trying to get me to do, is to write a script. A movie script. A movie script. So uh, I had this idea that I'm going to do, and, and I'm, I want to sort of explore it. And I want to sort of do it... I guess it's going to be a slightly autobiographical, but somewhat fictional at the same time. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, Transreal. Transreal, that's right. Yeah. Uh, but I was thinking about... So when I first got introduced to your books, it was through my mother, right? Uh -huh. I didn't know anything about you. And I, uh, like I said, I didn't really read that much. Yes. Uh, but I started reading some sci-fi books yes. all but more later. And I started reading some Arthur C. Clarke and, and things like that. And my mother said, well, you should read Uncle Rudy's books. And said, well, that's nice of that. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, oh, well, tell me about Uncle Rudy. And I started reading into it. And I was like, wow, this is great. And the first one I read was software and then went uh -huh. right after that. Yes. And then I started reading uh, The Hacker and the Ant. Yeah, that's sort of about Silicon Valley. Right. There, there aren't all that many novels about Silicon Valley. No. That are sort of realistic. and Right. But it also felt like, based on what my mother was telling me about you, it felt somewhat a little bit autobiographical in a sense. Yeah, it was about me working at Autodesk right. for a couple of years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I thought it was really fascinating. I loved the idea that it sort of went into a science fiction world and yeah. it had all these really amazing things. Um, but I've always wondered about, about writing. Like, what's the process that you go through when you're writing and what are the ideas that, that spawn those things? Well... Probably the main thing about writing that is is always not obvious to somebody starting is that you it takes a long time. You have to do rewrites. Like a story, I might do 10, 10 rewrites. Right. A novel, I'll do at least... Well, again, a, each chapter I print it out, I go over it, I mark it up, I redo it. Right. I do that. While I'm going through, I'll do maybe three or four rewrites on every few pages and then the whole thing's done, you set it aside and then you, you have to rewrite it again. But that's that's one aspect of it. Another aspect though is getting started. There's the, the fear of the blank page. Uh, 
and there it just you have to somehow get a voice going in your head and then you write down what it says right it's to me it's it's almost like I'm seeing and hearing the things I'm writing I, I get in a state where I'm sort of visualizing it right. and, and hearing the characters talk and to get to that point I have to have a a fairly clear idea of the characters right on the other hand uh it's sort of a chicken and egg thing. It's, it's not really possible to get a really thorough, complete outline of what you're going to do, at least for me, before I've, I've actually started writing on it. Okay. So it's the outline, in some sense, I, I write the outline while I'm writing the novel. Okay. It's sort of a parallel thing. And the, the no, at no point is the outline set in stone, because it's always, there's a, there's a whole computational reason for that. Uh, it's the fact that it's hard for it's hard for a complex computation to emulate itself or put it another way if you have a complex computation there's no way to predict the outcome there's no speed up for a universal Turing machine okay so if I'm working at the limits of my ability that's I'm doing the most complex computation I'm capable of and so it's not like there's going to be some back of the envelope shortcut to predict what I'm going to do because okay. if there were then I wouldn't in fact be working it and there's a whole theory about this this kind of Alan Turing proved these results okay. and, and so it's it applies to a lot of things in life but one of them is that you shouldn't get too hung up on the outline you need to just start writing right, just start writing yeah I was thinking about it because the way that I'm thinking about my stories is to write just a series of smaller stories and see if they all combine into a longer story at some point. Uh, because there are sort of different parts or different events that I'm thinking about. It's just writing a story about each of the events. Uh, that's a very good approach, particularly when you're, you're starting out. A novel's a little daunting. Right. It's sort of like, like rowing across the Atlantic, you yeah. know. And <laughs> it's okay. We're in the Los Gatos coffee roasting coffee shop, and there's a baby crying. <laughs> the mother's dandling it. It may yet calm down. It's all right. Uh, so, uh, I don't know. How about another question? Okay. Uh, let's talk about uh, your nonfiction that you've been writing. You, had, you gave me a book last time I was here, which was a couple, uh, a couple years ago, uh, on your book on Bruegel. Yes. And your passion about art and art history. Yes. So, what is some of your, uh, what is some of the, where did that come from? Where does your passion for art and art history come from? Uh, well, I always have loved art. Uh, my wife and I, your cousin Sylvia, yeah. we throughout our, our courtship and marriage, going to museums together has always been something that we like to do. Right. We're both sensitive to art. My mother was an artist. Uh, both my daughters are artists. Right. And I'm an artist. I paint. Right. By now, I've sold about 40 paintings. Yeah. So I'm sort of semi-pro. No, they're great paintings. Thanks. Yeah, they're great, great paintings. And you post them up on, on Facebook. Yeah. yeah, I just put one up today. Right. And uh, also, I like, I like painting because it's different from using a keyboard, you know, because keyboard is so digital, you know, right. there's the keys, and whether 
particularly if I, I used to do computer work, and now I still do web maintenance work, and that's sort of computery and very digital. And writing is, it's not really digital, but yet I am using the keyboard. Right. And it's sort of pleasant to just have paint, and it's messy, and there's these theories about how to mix colors, but I never can keep them straight in my head. Right. You just mush them around until you see what you want to see. Right. And uh, I like that. And that's also, painting is very much something, it's that same process where it's, uh, I mean, an old master, they might have done this incredibly detailed, they called it a cartoon, but a, a detailed drawing, underdrawing. But the way that I paint, or many people would paint, is just to sort of start start on the canvas and see see what you end up with. Right. And uh, often I'll have a theme that I want to do, but it's uh, it doesn't have to be planned very well. So art, I like it because it's uh, it's a different language. It's uh, so much of the things that you hear on the media are about low what you might call low chakra energies. You know, they're about power. I hated history. That was my least favorite subject in school because it was always, it wasn't the history of science. It wasn't the history of art. It was the history of, of politicians and kings, you right. know, and wars. Yeah. And to me, I've just always... We used to call the, the History Channel the War Channel. The War Channel, yeah. <laughs> and I have friends that love to watch it, but right. to me, it's just, it's despicable. It's beneath contempt. It's just... The whole subject. I was a, a draft dodger during the Vietnam War. Yeah. So it's. Uh, I just never bought into that. Interesting that you. It, so, when I was in undergraduate, I was a double major in, in, in math and also in art as well. Mm -hmm. And uh, the way that the art degree was at, at Colgate was you basically had to take art and art history combined. Huh. Good. And yeah. So. Um, when I got into art history, I sort of started getting into the modern arts, uh, my modern art class, and I learned some of the early parts of modern art in the 20s and stuff, the sort of relationship that they were starting to develop between math and art, and I sort of, my, my brain just went, oh my god, mm -hmm. art can be related to some of the other subjects I'm, I'm engaged with. Yes. Uh, and I got fascinated by it, and then my art history teacher was so excited that I was that I enjoyed this because I was one of the only people in the class that yes. could sort of understand it. Um, but I really love the idea of uh, you know the early Cubism, all of those things, and the futurists thinking about. It's interesting that you mentioned that. Right. Just yesterday, there's a, a woman who she was a student of mine. Oh God, like in 1978 or something, or and she corresponds with me sometimes. And she was saying, I wish you would talk about the relationship between art and math <laughs> in your own practice. Right. And so this is like, the world is full of synchronicity, so now you show up today and ask me that question. Well, what do you think about the relationship between math and art? Well, let me first mention some specific thing you mentioned. Cubism always fascinated me. And it has sort of something to do with the fourth dimension also. Yeah. There's a book by Linda Dalrymple Henderson about uh, cubism and the fourth dimension. Mm -hmm. Interesting book. And uh, that was, as a boy, when I heard about the fourth dimension in these early science fiction stories I read, I was just entranced with the idea that there could be this other direction that yes. we can't point in. And then uh, perspective is also 
just the mathematics of perspective is very interesting. Yeah. I get sort of, it's one of those things I thought I understood, and then, like anything with math, I never really understand it until I, I get obsessed with it and start making lots of drawings and figuring out the first principles for myself. Well, my, one of the things I did at the end of college, and so this is around 1993 or so, as I was learning Mathematica, mm -hmm. and uh, I had the exact same questions that you just asked about perspective. What is yeah. the math of perspective? And now yeah. what happens if I add another dimension to everything? Yes. And so I did a WXYZ perspective program that would basically create a three-dimensional shadow yeah. of a four-dimensional object. Yeah, I did that too. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that was my, that was, I, I loved it. Yeah. I had my students do that with me, the hypercube. The hypercube, and yeah. I also did a, a Klein bottle as well. Right. Yeah, the cheap way to do it is just to do an isometric projection down. Right. Know, but it's kind of cooler to do a perspective projection. Mm -hmm. It looks freakier and more warped. <laughs> and you can get to see things turn inside out. Inside out. I love it when the cube turns inside out. Yeah. And I've also, I mean, the math, fractals, the Mandelbrot set is a huge fascination to me. And, I got into it, there's a cubic form of the Mandelbrot set that is uh, strangely neglected. I invented it, it's called the Rudy set. Oh, really? Yeah, you can find it online. Okay. And, and then uh, the other, I got very interested in cellular automata, particularly continuous valued cellular automata, which people who do partial differential equations sometimes use that for a numerical method. Okay. You, you break the, the thing up into a grid, and you put a, a real number, a floating point number, in each cell, or maybe a couple of them. And then you might average it with its neighbors, or subtract the previous value, and you can get a wave happening, or all sorts of things. And everybody knows about the digital CAs, cellular automata, like Game of Life, mm -hmm. but continuous valued, also curiously neglected. But as I mentioned to you a minute ago, I've just recently been playing with this program called Kapow. It's a cellular automata emulator. And it gets the most beautiful images. And now I've been thinking, I've printed some of those images and I might paint them. It's uh, The thing is, uh, if, if you do an abstract painting and you just start slapping things on, there's a danger that a lot of those paintings look the same. It's like there's that that dance director, he said, I don't like to have my dancers improvise because they always do the same thing. <laughs> Which is funny. Yeah. It's ironic. Yeah. But uh, I thought if I could print out some nice CA images and then paint them. The thing is, paint, it'll be messy and funky and it won't be exactly right. But it'll be fun anyway. Right. It's shapes. I'm always, I love looking at shapes. That's a sort of intersection between art and math. Uh, I've been shooting photographs for 60 years now. I got my first camera about 60 years ago. And I'm glad I have a blog, because that gives me a, uh, a venue for my photos. Okay. I mean, I've never wanted to try get into trying to sell them or, or display them. I mean, life is miserable enough trying to sell my writing. <laughs> I don't want to ruin every single thing I do. Right. I'm trying to commercialize it. But uh, I, I've gotten this eye where I'll, I'll see things and then the shapes. And the thing is, math teaches you a lot about surfaces and forms. Mm -hmm. There's a wonderful book by uh, David Hilbert and a man called, uh, I think, 
I forget his first name. His last name is Cohn Vossen. And it's a, it's a book from like some small publisher, like Open Court or something like that. And it's called uh, Geometry and the Imagination. Oh. And it's just, it's just all the lectures that Hilbert gave, just sort of fun lectures. But since he's Hilbert, you know, he'll, he won't just stop. You know, he'll just delve on. He'll say, he won't say, here's the hypercube. He say, and then here's the five other regular polytopes, you know, and, okay. and delve into it all. It's just, it's a beautiful, beautiful book. And I learned a lot about shapes from looking at that book. Yeah. Yeah, those are some of my, 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 my math classes that were some of my favorites was uh, the, my geometry class. Yes. Uh, my topology class and, uh, and my abstract algebra class, which was the least visual, but the one that really sort of... I think abstract algebra opened up my imagination more than anything. Hmm, that's even, interesting. Even though it wasn't necessarily uh, graphical or, mm -hmm. or representational in a lot of ways. Well, for me, the non-visual one that I liked was set theory. Oh, yeah. And then I got my PhD in, in transfinite set theory. Okay. There's some really beautiful things there. Yeah. So what do you, what do you think about, since, since you did... You, you obviously have a, a large background in uh, computer science as well, and I'm I'm sort of fascinated by a lot of what's going on in the technology side, how that's going to change things. Uh, I've been going to a lot of the, uh, uh, the GPU conferences now, and a lot of things that's happening in terms of massive parallel computing, and I'm curious because a lot of what's happening, let's relate it back to the yard thing. Uh, is a lot of the examples they keep using is the computer that generates art on request <laughs> in a lot of ways, which is very kind of disturbing. Well, that's, yeah, that's sort of a scam. Uh, yeah. It's, I mean, so there's this thing they do now in, in ads and short art videos and movies. They get a, a quartet of four notes, like da-da-da-da-da-da-da-da, and they just play that over and over. They put it on a loop. And they might play it a thousand times, you know, okay. a couple of minutes. And they think they're making music, but they're not, you know. <laughs> yeah. It's just unbelievably irritating. Yeah. It's wallpaper. Yeah. And the, the same thing, speaking of wallpaper, I mean the drum. The drum on, on rap and disco, right. you know, wallpaper. Right. Just leaden. And it's not that hard to tweak those algorithms I mean, I, you can already do it, but for some reason they don't. To put a little bit of chaos in it, right. and just slip a little logistic attractor in there, so it's like Charlie Watts, it'll go ahead a little, it'll right. back up. And then the other thing, looking at these cellular automata again, what makes them nice is they're being generated on the fly. And again, they're complicated computations, so you can't predict them. So if you're watching ineffective video, but it's not a video that's canned. You know, it's not a loop. Right. It's just being generated in real time. Okay. I mean, you mentioned earlier that people are starting to do ray tracing in real time, but there's all sorts of effects you can do in real time. And that's where it's sort of, you can't be too tight-ass about it. When people want to do generated art, they're, they're tight-assed about it, and they say, I'm going to assign these parameters, and it's going to generate something of a certain type, and I kind of know what it's going to look like. Right. And you want to be loose and say, let's increase the computation crunch, 
and let's do a lot more steps. Let's not just do 20 steps. Let's do 20,000 steps right. in generating this thing. And then it's going to be incredibly gnarly and rich and beautiful. And so I think it can be done. On the other thing, the when you're in these, the space of art, it's you know such a it's like a Hilbert space with infinitely many dimensions. There's so many things you can go go towards, and then how do you find your way? And that's where the human mind, again working at our full ability, we're bringing in not just your mind, you've got your heart in it, your emotions, mm -hmm. and at some point. I notice this when I'm writing. Well, I'm really in the zone. Things start happening around me, or it feels that way. It feels like the universe begins dancing with me. Right. And I'll see just the thing I need to see, and I'll hear the thing I need to hear, and the thing I've been writing about, I'll open it up, and there it is. And uh, that's, that's something I don't think we could readily create an algorithm that runs on an Intel chip that's going to do that for us. You don't think so? No. Even, what about some of the newer, you know, multi-core GPUs that are, that are basically... Well, I mean, it can be decent, it can be better than it used to. Right. And, again, I mean, the cellular automata, it will make an image that's incredibly beautiful art. So I guess, I just, I'm very suspicious always of people that get overexcited about what they're, it's like a stupid pet trick that AI has yeah. done. Right. <laughs> I used to teach AI at San Jose yeah. State. It's a bunch of cheap tricks. You know? what, what, do you think, what do you think now? I mean, obviously AI is a hot subject right now. It's getting better, because all of a sudden, we used to do neural nets, and then we always just had like two or three layers in the neural net. Right. And now the big thing now, deep learning, you might have five or six layers. Right. And that's huge. And the reason we didn't do it before was because it's the computational expense of right. training and that like that. And the other thing that's happening is Google's into it. They've got their, do they call it Google Brain? Yeah, where it's inventing itself. <laughs> yeah, and well, the thing is they've got the big data. They've got, you know, ungodly amounts of data to, to crunch on. Right. <laughs> and they can farm some of their computation out to the, lots of other machines. And they can actually be sort of testing it in people's how people relate to it. Right. So I think there is something there where it could get pretty far. Another aspect of AI that I don't think is stressed enough is that it's, it comes back to being a variation on the, the cruddy old uh, ELISA program. The thing is, if I have a super big database of somebody, like I'm making an idea that I've always been interested, I used to be more interested than I am now, this thing I call a life box. Yeah. And it would be, I would make an AI program or a website that could emulate me. And so you could go there and talk to it, and it would be the same as talking to me. Like, you could be doing this interview, and I wouldn't be here. Instead, there'd be, my laptop would be here, and it would be answering with much the same kinds of answers that I'm giving now. Why would you want to do that? Uh, that's, I, I wonder. <laughs> well, I used to want to do it because I was afraid of dying. And I thought then that's a type of immortality. Right. And that was the thing. I remember that from, from, software. from software. Yeah. That was, software was, believe it or not, software was the, the first science fiction novel that was based on the idea of somebody's brain being uploaded into a computer. Right. I mean, now that idea is a cliche. Right. But it was incredibly hard 
to come up with that idea. When was this? this in 1978, 79, I thought of it. Right. I had a, a two-year grant at the University of Heidelberg in Germany to study mathematical logic. Uh -huh. And there is this essay, essay by Kurt Gödel about the possibility of robot intelligence. And slowly, slowly, I realized that we couldn't write the program, but we could evolve it. And again, that's sort of a truism now. Right. A really complicated thing. But deep learning now is all about evolution. Yeah, right? it's all about evolution, because you can't figure it out. It's too hard to figure out. You right. evolve it. And the other thing that I figured out was that if I had all the data, I could emulate myself, and it would actually be a fairly cheap computation. Because I wouldn't have to have this huge degree of, uh, of like Minsky used to dream of, you know, having machines that would think logically and, and do all that, that stuff that supposedly we do, but which in fact we don't do. Very little logic going on. Uh, uh, so much of what I think is just association, you know. I just dive in, I, I grab something that's associated with what I just mentioned, and then I patch it together. <laughs> and it looks like an idea, it looks like a sentence, it looks like a paragraph. And uh, so that's where I think uh, if we would get you know, these huge databases, that's why the Google, Google brain has a, a leg up. Right. And my, what I've done in terms of realizing my own life box was to, I've made sure that as much of my writing as possible is online. So you can already, already I already wrote a little page, it's called Rudy's Life Box, and you can use Google search, and it'll just search my website. Mm -hmm. And I've, you know, it's several gig by now, my website. Mm -hmm. And basically, I'm trying to get every one of my books there. Uh, the thing is, if you want to sell your books, you have to be a little careful about how you put them online. But if I put it, a book online as a web page, it's fairly harmless. Right. If somebody's serious about it, of course, they can snarf down the web page and use Calibre to turn it into an ebook. but whatever. <laughs> At well, least I'm good. immortal. Yeah. yeah, at least you're immortal, right. So that is an it. I've listened to, there's a lot of people who have an amazing body of work, and they feel an obligation to, 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 to share that with a lot of people. One of the other people I've, uh, I've talked to, and he's been on my podcast before, is a, is a fantastic photographer named Norman Seif. Mm -hmm. And uh, he's photographed all, like every celebrity from the 70s, like his and stuff. And he was... He did the, the famous photograph of, uh, of Steve Jobs and uh, uh -huh. Ray Charles and all of those guys. And he has such a huge library of content that he's created and he owns that he wants to do very something very similar. He wants to put it up online to show everything, and but give it context. That's the other. His yeah. biggest problem is giving it context. Yes. So what is the context? What, what is the context of your work? Well, I mean, I have the, I mean, the books, there's a page about each book, and then the book is a file off that. I have my blog, which is the sort of narrative thread. I put my journals online, and uh, you can search it, but it's, to give it the context, you basically need the bot that, uh, you need the box. A bot, yeah, the life box, the BOT, but I haven't, that's, I don't have it together to write that, but it would be a fairly simple front end. 
where it would remember the things that you said to it, it would make a file for you so it wouldn't repeat itself. Right. And it would remember the things it said it, to you so it's not like, you know, your grandfather telling the same story twice in a row. That happens. A lot, yeah. <laughs> I had guys who were doing that in our, in our 20s. But, <laughs> but uh, so that's, it's a pretty lightweight front end if you have all that data. It, you don't want, it doesn't really need to do that much. It's mainly just do a quick search and then maybe slight massage, uh, textural massage to make it look like it fits. That's actually how, when somebody asks you a question, you yeah. do a search on such some tidbit that is right. triggered by that, yeah. and you act like that's the answer. <laughs> it's the answer I have. Yeah. Uh, but, okay, so it kind of brings up an idea of, I mean, there's a, and I forget, you'll, you'll probably tell me exactly who it was, but there was a, someone who told me about this idea that the closer we are to actually uh, being able to simulate life, yes, the closer the closer it is to reality to be actually living in a simulation. The closer it is to what? If the closer we are to actually simulating life, yeah, the, the, the closer the reality is that we are actually living in a simulation. Oh, that's a whole. People have been talking about that this week. There's an interesting post uh, on the New Yorker. They have a, a page, yeah. and there's this writer, Al Adam Gopnik. Uh -huh. He's a, a good writer, essayist, and he just posted something saying that the uh, the Trump election plus the flub of the Academy Awards proves that we're living in a simulation. Really? So yeah. What's, what's his theory? Well, that such, and also the uh, the Super Bowl. You know. Okay, right, all right. Because these things where these completely wrong and unexpected events happen, <laughs> so that's, I mean, somebody could argue if they wanted to that this means that there's a, a bug in the, the operating system right. that's simulating our world. And once that bug happened, it just continuously manifested itself. Yeah. Yeah. But this, uh, let's wait for that to go down. Sure. It's hard to filter that stuff out, too. Yeah. Okay. Okay, so you were talking about the idea, do we live in a simulation? And, and I think that's an idea that has currency now. It's like a religious belief. Uh, I'm not exactly sure why people want to believe that. Uh, it partly has to do with it. You spend so much of your time looking at your computer and your smartphone, that starts to seem like reality. But uh, it's complete bullshit. And again, there's, there's reasons that are fairly reasonable scientific things. I mean, our world is a compu quantum computation. It's made of an octillion atoms. Each of them is you know, vibrating, doing something very intricate all the time. And to think you're going to jam that down onto, onto a chip is absurd, you know. Yeah. And people will say, well, what about computronium? Which doesn't mean anything. It's a made-up word. It doesn't actually have any meaning. Okay. And they'll say, well, I'll put together some nanomachines 
and, and simulate a blade of grass, you know? And well, that's what a blade of grass is. It's a bunch of nanomachines, also known as elementary particles, that are simulating a blade of grass, you know? And you're not gonna, you're not gonna stand on your own shoulders. You're not gonna get ahead of it. And if you go into VR, I mean, you can have fun in VR, but it's always, if you lean close and look really close, I mean, after a while you see the triangles, you know, and it's, you see the little holes and the colors, at some point the colors, the granularity of the colors shows up. And it's cheesy. It's always going to be cheesy. It's never going to stop being cheesy. And it's just a ridiculous idea to want to believe that you live in a simulated reality. It's just, it's this... It's this like life-hating, anti-Gaia, overly male disassociation from you know our vibrant natural world. Right. And I try to get out in nature as much as I can, and I'm just always intoxicated by the richness. And don't you think that a lot of nature? Why are we fascinated by nature? Well, we're part of it. Well, it's the mother. It. It's the divine mother. Right. So why do, why do you think nature is so important to us? Because I agree it is. What's well, the most complicated thing that, that there is? Right. Okay. It's the biggest thing there is. It's the richest thing there is. And Bruce Sterling, when they were first doing VR, he said, these, these environments, you, you see, want to see somebody get in there with a spray can, you know? Yeah. But now, I mean, they've done that. I mean, there's things, I mean, certainly, I mean, I respect the, the I mean, these worlds, you know, these, you know, like these funky, funky, complicated worlds that you can go into. I mean, they're, they're fun to look at, but I just think it's sad if you think that playing that is as interesting as going to the beach or taking a hike in the woods. Yeah. I mean, like, I'm a, an old man here shaking my finger. <laughs> well, I, I spend a lot of time dealing with the subject of VR uh, because it's a subject that a lot of people are interested in and they want it to look as good as possible. And sure. So now ray tracing is becoming a very important part of VR in order because there's only so much you can do in real time. So I spend a lot of time looking at this in the context of it and... I think there's a lot of, I think VR is going to serve a really great purpose for a specific thing. Mm-hmm. And I think for the design process, as an example, like architecture, design and VR. Yeah, VR is great. Would be great for that. But I think one of the things I have a hard time with is the context of people creating entertainment in VR. Because I, I just don't... Specifically, like the movie making. Why they're trying to make movies in VR just doesn't make any sense for me. Why not just go to the movies? Well, it's tempting because it's a new medium. I mean, I I don't see myself. I don't despise VR. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I could like to. If the headsets got better and better, I'd like to see. Really, I mean, even the the Google Cardboard isn't isn't all that bad. It's funny. Last year. My Sunday Times was in the driveway, and there was a Google Cardboard attached to it. Uh-huh. It just came free. And then I went online and looked at this very cool art video that the New York Times had put up. Uh-huh. And I was very impressed. Yeah. I mean, VR, it's exciting. But, uh, 
when I was working at Autodesk, we were, VR since had these peaks. It was its first peak back then. It was like the Jaron Lanier period. And, yeah, and people were, thought it was going to be the big thing. And then what happened was it went into video games, you know, and it wasn't being used for surgery or architecture. And the video game guys, they, they really ran with it. And video games, it's very good VR. And you're not necessarily wearing goggles, but it's an immersive 3D environment. Sure. And it's, uh, and now they've got the, the newer goggles, they're better. But uh, I think it's, you know, people want to see it. We like this thing, we're monkeys. We like to fiddle with things. Yeah. I mean, I, I, don't, I don't see anything wrong with VR. I just think, I just, the thing I was arguing about a second ago is if you go, you get too sort of entranced with it. I mean, like at one time people thought the universe was a clock, you know, or they thought the universe was an epic poem or the universe is a painting, you know? Sure. It's like whatever you're interested in, you know, the universe is a good high, you know? Sure. What a, a hallucination. Whatever you're interested in, you, you say, well, that's what everything is, but it's, it's all of those things. Right. And it's, you know, it's not gonna live inside a chip. It's not gonna live inside a chip. No. Which is funny to hear you say that, because a lot of what you write about is kind of about things living inside of chips. That's not really what I write about. But there are things that, that go on inside of silicon that are happening. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, the robots are intelligent. And in Hacker and the Ants, that's sort of... They're in the VR there some of the time. <coughs> and there's a funny thing there where he's in the VR and he doesn't know that he is. Right. They, that's a trick the hackers are playing on each other. They call it putting him on the dark dream. Okay. <laughs> convincing him that he's awake, you know. Right. And then really fucking with him, you know. <laughs> yeah. That's. I mean, there was an episode like that on uh, Black Glass. Uh -huh. Black Glass had some great stuff. I think it was the Christmas one with, uh, with, uh, you know, the guy from uh, Mad Men. Yeah. John Hamm. Yeah. And, or there's another one where there's a guy he was testing out a game supposedly, and that thing where you you lose it and you can't tell which is which, and that's. It's an interesting thing to write about and think about uh, whether it's going to be happening very often. I mean, it might happen sometimes. It's not all bad. But uh, the thing is, I guess the reason it annoys me if somebody say this could just be a simulated reality, if you degrade, it's sort of like Trump with the fake news. If I start saying this is a fake universe, then it doesn't really matter if we fuck Earth up, you know, if we rape it, it doesn't matter. It's a, it's a fake universe. And if you start saying the real news is fake, it's like if somebody wants to ruin a country's currency, they print a lot of counterfeit money and they distribute it. And then all the money starts to seem, it's debased, debased currency, it starts to seem fake. And if you, you're posting lies and just steadfastly declaiming lies and saying that they're true, you're debasing and then flipping it to say the real news is the fake news. Right. It's just so, so diabolic, really. Right. And to me, well, we're all sensitive these days. It's we're kind of, we're, we're going through a really horrible, difficult time. But to be saying that our universe is a simulation, it's, it's an aspect of that same sort of mindset. It's debasing reality, just right. saying it's, it doesn't matter. It puts less value on reality. Exactly. Yeah, I, can, I, I know what you mean. I, I don't necessarily 
believe in myself. Um, I think it's an interesting idea, but I think, yeah, I have responsibilities as a living real person yeah. that, uh, and implications to my actions yeah. that I don't have when I play video games. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, yeah, that's... Well, whenever you do that for a while, and then you're in your car, you just, you know, where's the, where's the cruise missile? Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But, well, okay, so you, you mentioned a little bit about AI, and so there was another really great sort of uh, quote that I remember listening to, uh, uh, I think it was uh, the Infinite Monkey Tree uh, podcast, and they were talking about how AI right now, it's, it's much easier to write an incredibly intelligent uh, piece of software that can play chess or or, uh, or Go or whatever, but it's infinitely harder to write a program that figures out how to make a cup of tea in someone else's kitchen. Sure, right. <laughs> yeah, the, the easy problem is playing chess. The hard problem is finding the chessboard. Right. And, yes. and picking up the pieces. Yeah. The things we take for granted. And most of that, or not most of it, but a lot of it is, is hardwired into our brain. So it's not, those are the kind of things that are hard to emulate because they got in our brain by a million years of evolution. Mm -hmm. You know, it, something that you can teach somebody, that's... That's a very deep that's, process. That's simple to right. teach somebody something. But the stuff that you're born with, the firmware, that's, uh, that's the stuff that it just got there over, as I say, millennia of slow evolution. And that's, again, they, they, they sort of, they're hip to that now. They say, well, if we're going to get there, we're just going to have to do the evolution ourselves. And the thing about evolution, I used to work on uh, artificial life programs. That, that was big in, like, 1986. And there's this dream that we were going to have little critters in our computers, and they were going to evolve and get really good. And then they never got very far. And then the catch is that the evolution... Well, it takes place on the entire planet, and there's a billion entities involving, right. and they're being updated continuously in real time right. for tens of thousands of years. Right. And it's just, you can't shortcut. I mean, you can shortcut a little bit, but... It's not like the computers are going to be... It's the kind of thing that you were saying earlier, like it's at the limit of its abilities, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you think that computers are going to get faster? What do, you, do you think that they are going to... Do you think quantum computers are actually going to do make a difference? Oh, yeah. I think in 100 years, we won't be using digital chips at all. Yeah. We'll have something else. What and kind I, of chips are we Computation is a type of analog computation, and it's, it's not clear if that's going to work or not. It's, you know, there's all these problems with decoherence, and it's just... It might, it might come together, it might not. But I'm sure there will be some other kind of continuous analog process, uh, biological, you know, something like that that's, that's going to kick the ass of, of, of digital chips. And why wouldn't it be? I mean, 100 years ago we didn't have them. You know, why would you expect that 100 years ago we'd be using the same thing? It's, uh, it'll be something different. And as soon as you can get into the idea of using matter, well, in a way, any material object is a computer, as I never tire of saying. It's, it's full, I mean, it's got the quantum computation going, or if you just want to think about it, you can think of the particles in there. They're, it's like they're coupled by springs, so it's like the, all these vibrating atoms. And it's, it's doing this huge amount of computation, 
It's not computing anything that we care about. <laughs> it's, it's basically what we need is I/O for a rock. Okay, the rock's your computer, okay. but we don't have the input-output. Right. But I don't see why it it shouldn't be feasible. And you can just use the molecules that are inside the rock. Exactly. As your computer. Yes. Do you just give them different directions, or you just basically use the atoms as as memory? I'm not exactly sure how it's going to work. I don't think the right idea is to think of it being like a Van Neumann architecture. Okay. I think it'll be something different. Okay. It's interesting. Um, all right. So if you have, don't necessarily have. Well, you can. There's. Do you think there's going to be a split at some point where the, you know VR starting to become more popular? Let's say it does take off this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you think there is going to be a split between those two worlds? Do you think there's going to be a world where people are on one side and there's the other ones in the reality world? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure what you mean by the split. Some yeah, people who spend all their time in VR? Some, some people spend most of their time in VR, some people spend most of their time out of VR, and exactly. people separate into different types well, of people. I mean, how much of your time can you spend in VR? I don't know. In a way, I mean, even looking at your, your smartphone is a type of VR because you're not present, right. you know, you're in cyberspace, if you like, you're, you're looking at Twitter, your Facebook, whatever. Um, and, and that's, I used to, five years ago, 10 years ago, I used to look down on people who walked around with a smartphone. I thought they were idiots, right. poking at this little device. That was before I got an iPhone. <laughs> And, and now, yeah, and it's it's this thing. If they they've done you know experiments with rats, you know if you push the lever, you'll get a food pellet. And what works the best if it's par- if it's uh, partial reinforcement, you, you you don't always get a food pellet. Right. You only get a food pellet, and it's unpredictable. Right. That's the most addictive. It turns out. Right. And that's how the phone is for us. You know, I'll go check, push the email button, you know, no pellet. Yeah. <laughs> push the Twitter button. Anybody commented on my posts? Right. Uh, and it's, it's funny. And I sort of, I always want to do it less, and then it beca- it's so much become a default. So, yeah, I am actually one of those persons that's, that's in the, the VR there. Though I try not to be, you know. I'll say I've got to get off the computer and go for a bike ride. And depending what I'm doing that morning, either I manage to get out or I don't. I always find, especially now, now it's a good example, and you mentioned this before because it's a stressful time. If ever I want to feel stressed, all I have to do is get on Facebook. Yes, because all anybody posts about is the politics. Everything is so negative. People feel the need to shout. Yes. People don't do that. You're not seeing people shouting when you talk to them. Yes. Twitter's a little bit lighter somehow. There's more fun things on Twitter. Yeah. Facebook's... What I do now, every time somebody posts about, about politics on Facebook, I instantly unfollow them. Right. I don't unfriend them, but there's this but you know, there's this choice where you're not gonna see their posts anymore. Right. If there's a cat out of there. <laughs> don't like cat stuff. No, they, cats are like this sweet relief to me in some It ways. depends. <laughs> now a dog, I like to see a dog. Okay. But it's it's a personal thing. <laughs> but uh, 
yeah. dogs or cats. It's just like, oh, thank God, it's not another yeah. post. It's well, I'm, not so, it, I'm sort of a, allergic to cats. That's my problem. Okay. Well. <laughs> but yeah, I just, I'm just wondering about about the idea that people act so. Uh, people that I know. They get that more are very uptight. Nice, they get, yeah. They get so much more vocal. Like I would, I would never actually be friends with this person if they only spoke the way they do on on, on Facebook. Network. Yeah, because yeah. I know they're better people than that. So that's why yeah. it's, it's hard for me to unfollow them. Well, I have a, I have some friends like that. I know exactly what you mean. Where if you see them, they're genial and they're joking about everything. Mm-hmm. But there, they get into this sort of shock cone. <laughs> yeah. yeah, but do you think that the like a. If that's a VR world, if that's the reality, is that is that just because that's the persona they wish they could just have, and they feel they can sort of shout out into their darkness with someone? I don't know. It's like not even anonymous. Well, if you go to a psychologist, you're probably not going to talk about the things that you're happy about. You know, right? I mean, it's sort of like free free group counseling. I mean, there's that group therapy aspect, right? To share, but. If it's just a circle of people bringing each other down, it's it's just you know you have to you have to control. It's up to you. You have to say I'm not gonna I'm gonna unfollow anybody that, that's posting that stuff. Not that I don't like them, but I just I can't look at it. I'm not gonna watch the president on TV tonight. I'm just not gonna do it. You know, it just I can't handle it. You know, we've had other bad presidents, and I lived through Nixon. <laughs> And both the Bushes and Reagan, you know, and it was hard at times, but you get through it. Yeah, you do. Um, it's. I just want to. I have to. It's a struggle, but I have to remember to take. It's my own life. It's up to me. Right. I mean, I need to just do things that. that you say, well, why aren't you calling the congressman all the time? Well, I need to. I need to have a life. You know, right. I'm going to be dead in, in ten years probably. You know, okay. do I? Why shouldn't I be painting and, and programming and writing, yeah. and, and going to the beach? You know, I can keep doing that before they they put me in prison. <laughs> why would they put you in prison? I don't know. <laughs> All sorts of reasons. I'm not going to admit to them. Okay, but I think I, I think that there's. You know, it's interesting. I, I don't necessarily. I was talking about politics, uh, but it was from my daughter's perspective, right? Because she's ten years old. She's this is her first election that she remembers. And, yeah. and so there is an air of panic that happens in kids, like, "Oh my God, what's going to happen to our life?" And there's no context. Yes. So I always, my wife and I were let her know. It's like, you know, the good thing about our political system, generally speaking, is that it's very hard for an individual person to actually do. Damage. As much as they want it's, to, anyway. It's certainly testing the waters right now to yeah. see how true that really is. Yes, yes. Well, it is, you know, the ba- checks and balances. Yeah. Uh, I, don't, I don't really know what I can do except to do, I mean, I, I guess my, the best revenge is living well in hell, right? To I some extent, to, yeah, and keep it together and keep a sense of humor and, you know. Well, we're in California anyway. Right. It's almost like being in a different country. Yeah. It is very different. I mean, just hearing hearing the rhetoric that you hear from a lot of the people in the Midwest and stuff, yeah. which I think is fascinating. I think that people in California just don't necessarily understand how that even happened. 
uh, which I think would be if they if they really want to do something instead of just sitting yelling at the darkness, yeah. they should just go out there and find out why that happened in the first place. Well, that's yeah, I, I've heard that thought expressed. Yeah. Um, but you know, I, I, from my point of view, take some road trips. Take some road trips. I love road trips. Me too. I love road trips. That's gonna. That's probably gonna be the the script I write. Will be based on a road trip. Yeah, and you get into a screaming political argument with every single person that you meet. <laughs> Do you? No, 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 no. <laughs> no, no, you no. don't. No. Yeah. You don't. I think you get some. Very well, you avoid it. I mean, people don't want to talk about that. Anybody, you know, they're sick of it. Right. Well, I don't know. Are we done? Yeah, we're pretty close to done. Is there anything you think is important that we should uh, that you want to wrap up about or talk about or let people uh, know to, to go check your blog out, obviously? Well, sure. I think I've hit all the things that I want to talk about. Okay. Yeah. Well, yeah, if you go to my webpage, you can find whatever it is I'm, I'm currently trying to sell. <laughs> Not photography. No, but, you know, my paintings, my books. Yeah. I self-published a lot of my books recently. Uh, so how do you self-publish books? That's, a, that's, a, that's an interesting thing. Well, for years, I had the commercial publishers in New York were doing my books. Right. And now um, the structure of those companies has changed. They're more geared towards having, you know, the $100,000, $100,000 selling book. Right. And I'm more of a 10,000 copy selling author. And so they, you know, they didn't want to carry me anymore. So that's... Uh, the way I've been publishing lately is uh, I write the book, I do a Kickstarter to get the equivalent of an advance. Right. I might, you know, pick up five or $10,000 that way. And then uh, you can make a Kindle book very easily. There's a product, there, there's something called KDP, the K Kindle Developers Platform. And basically it's, uh, well, there's various ways to do it. I've written about online. It's basically you're just creating a basically a web page of your book, and right. then you wrap it up inside a, a Kindle file. Uh -huh. It's it's not too hard to do. But I'm a computer science professor, and it took me about a year to learn how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> it's not that hard. But I mean, you can do it kind of badly, pretty easily. Right. It's how. How, how do you promote your book? Just through social media? Network. I have the social media. Uh, I have about 7,000 followers on Twitter and maybe 4,000 Facebook friends. Right. I've got my blog, which gets a lot of hits. Yeah. And uh, Boing Boing will often mention something. I'm sort of old friends with them. Oh, okay. And then uh, for the, the paperback, again, you go through Amazon. They sort of own the world now. <laughs> And you get InDesign and use InDesign software to uh, design a really nice looking book. You know, it's, I mean, Word isn't good enough. You want to make it look better than that. And then, uh, then you upload the PDF to Amazon, and then they have it on file, and it's presented as a, a book that they have for sale. But they print it on demand, don't they? They print it on demand. That's become sort of a, a dirty word, print on demand. Because it used to mean like really shitty looking books yeah. in the 90s, you know? Yeah. And now, so we don't really say print on demand, but it, it, that's what it is. But now they, you know, the technology has gotten so it looks just like any other quality paperback. Oh, that's great. In no respect does it look different. 
Right. And so that's much easier for you than going to the publisher's market. Uh, it's, it sure is. Yeah. And you get m most of the money, you know. The right. publisher will give you like 10%, you know, or 5% of what they get. Uh, the difference is uh, you don't get into bookstores. In principle, the bookstores can read, can order the books from you mm -hmm. or from Amazon. or There's also Lightning, a company called Lightning. Mm -hmm. They distribute it too. They're part of Ingram. But uh, they tend not to, to order those in. So... Uh, how many books have you written so far? Forty. Forty? Yeah. And how many have you done self-published? I've done the last uh, four or five. Okay. You can find them at transrealbooks.com. Okay. Transrealbooks.com. Yeah. Well, that's great. I think this is perfect for me. I really appreciate you doing this. Well, nice to see you, Christopher. Yeah. And uh, thanks for coming up. It's fun to discuss all these things. <laughs> all right. Thanks.